Welcome to the practice of being seen. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. In these curated discussions, I invite you to make space to see yourself. But here's a little warning. The practice of being seen might lead to deeper intimacy, less fear, and more creative, bold action. Are you ready to deepen your practice and be seen? My friends, today's conversation undulates between the current state and issues within our collective unconscious as Americans living in today's society and political climate to the individual in how we deal with self-reflection, trauma, and loss, beautifully illustrating the now proverbial rally cry, the personal is political. We're covering it all from our political parents to our collective infancy on the internet to grief and loss and metabolizing trauma, capitalism, and gift-giving culture, community mindset and collaboration to technology, parenting, psychoanalytic theory, and the choices we have in suicide versus end of life. It all comes down to what we're able to hold and how two minds metabolizing together can disrupt repetitive patterns. So with that said, there is a little trigger warning. If you're thinking about suicide or are worried about a friend or a loved one and would like some emotional support, the Lifeline Network is available 24-7 across the United States at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. And we've included a link in our show notes. Here's the show. It's episode 50. And today I'm talking to Molly Merson, a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in Berkeley, California. She's a clinical supervisor, therapist, teacher, and the author of several articles on psychoanalysis and pop culture, loss, and social justice. We talk about so many different delicious aspects of all of this in today's interview, and Rather than starting you off with a hefty preamble, I'm just going to entice you with this Howard Thurman quote that we touched on. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. You ready? Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm here today with Molly Merson and I'm really excited for this conversation. Molly and I haven't really had much of a chance to connect and talk to each other out in the world, but we we have connected a bit on social media and I'm always so interested in the conversations and topics that Molly's bringing up and thinking about. So this feels like a real treat. Molly, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, two of the things that I know that you are pretty passionate about are psychoanalysis and politics. Yes, very passionate. 
Yeah. And um, so that is partly why I've brought you on the show today. I mean, there's probably a gazillion other reasons why I've brought you on too. And I'm just excited to, to be talking to you. But I feel like so many of your thoughts and your feelings are what we need to hear more of right now. Mm. Mm. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I feel like we can't turn away. You know, we, we, I mean, not only are we sort of, um, if you use any kind of social media or if you're in the social sphere at all, like talk to another human being, um, you can't really uh, avoid knowing something about what's happening um, in our country and, and elsewhere. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things we were talking about before we hopped on this call, before we started recording, was how opinions are so changeable. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things, you know, and we were sort of talking about it too in the context of me being on your podcast where, uh, you know, this idea of my thoughts and our thoughts together, like whatever you and I create together as we speak, yeah, uh, whatever emergence from that, um, that in itself might be something very new from what I was thinking yesterday because I didn't, you know, have your mind to think with. And um, so this also may stir up other thoughts and other ideas and, and other opinions and perspectives that I might explore later. So I feel like the more that we are with each other thinking and talking about um, what feels really important and really present, then uh, the more we do change and the more we shift and, you know, in this very nonlinear way, like, it's not like we go back and forward. It's like, this kind of growth uh, together. So I think there's something really important about, for me personally, being able to talk with you today, but also with what you're doing with the podcast. Yeah, I feel like it's in these conversations and that's what I, I love about this podcast is I get to have all these conversations. Yeah. And, and it's in these conversations that, that we evoke transformation. You know, yeah. we're seeking something that we don't already know because if we knew it, we wouldn't be seeking it. Yeah, and things that we think we know. And then when we say them out loud or when we say them with, you know, different people, we realize something new about it. Yeah, it has a different flavor, a different texture, a different shape. And yeah. I think, you know, these conversations, I'm thinking back to, to some other things that are kind of in my head. But when, when I think about politics, I can't separate that from the personal, you know, like, mm-hmm. When I go back and I think about like the origin of politics, I think about families. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when I think about government, I, I think it, it's I, ideally <laughs> supposed to be like, like that, right? It's supposed to be a place where we can feel safe and secure, where everybody's taken care of. That's not always how it works. We know that. But that's what I think that politics are supposed to provide. Yeah. We don't have the greatest parents right now as a country, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> we really don't. Yeah. And, and I think, it, you know, it, in some ways, though, it also comes back to that, doesn't it? Because in order to, to have great parents, they had to have great parents. They had to have great parents, right? And yeah. there's all of these transgenerational stories and traumas that get passed down. Absolutely. And, and I would also add to that that I think it can be multidirectional in the sense that the children can make 
great parents if the great if the parents are willing to listen. And I think that's also one of the things that's happening where, um, like for example, you know, uh, if one has a narcissistic parent, there's no um, getting in. You know, there's no getting through that that um, armor or that skin that's you know very sort of uh, turned inward, right? Yeah. Like a narcissistic parent is very self focused. And so there's no way for the child to really impact that parent to help the parent become a good parent. Um, and I, I sort of wonder if something similar is happening, you know, uh, politically here. Uh, it, it would seem so. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I was just thinking about the, the multi-generational piece too, in, in terms of our ancestors and, you know, um, us, now bearing, having to bear um, the experiences of our, our ancestors, the ones that have been metabolized and the ones that haven't. Um, Say more. I'm just thinking about, you know, there are certain things that live in this very unspeakable realm. I mean, when we think about politics, we can also think about language, right? We Certainly, have to. Yeah, right? So there's like society, there's family, um, social norms and there's language that can be a tool for, um, you know, social structures and social norms. And it can also be something exploratory and, and creative, malleable, but it can also uphold like a status quo. And if we don't have language for whatever it is we've experienced, the kinds of traumas um, of any kind that we've experienced then how do we bring that into some kind of consciousness? You know, how do we become, how do we be, you know, become able to think about our traumas, about this unspeakable stuff? I mean, it just becomes very complicated. Especially in a collective way. Absolutely. This is one of the things I love, like, about social media and the open access to the internet is that there are just so many people able to put language to things that have, uh, that has, I think up till now been tightly controlled by just a few um, mm. entities, you know, and now it's pretty open. Um, and, you know, we were, we were talking about, um, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and the me too movement. Um earlier yeah before we started recording yeah and I guess I I just think about you know how is it possible that you know finally uh these people who have had to bear a lot of this unspoken trauma like you just don't talk about sexual assault or that was sort of the the thinking um they're able to find a voice and a platform and language and it's become a part of our social consciousness right now and the impact that social media has played in that, like, would Absolutely. that have even been a dialogue if we yeah. didn't have these interweb connections? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet there's another side to it too, right? Because there's, there's mm -hmm. this happening and it, for some of us, this is what's in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's, um, well, <laughs> there's our president using social media in a whole nother way. <laughs> <laughs> yes you know we're correct. yeah we're kind of being exposed to an a consciousness or an unconsciousness that is kind of seeping out and it's it's a whole new view into yeah. what 
I'm making air quotes, but leadership looks like. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's an, it's an interesting, I'm glad that you put that in air quotes. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, I, um, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast on being. Oh gosh. Yes. Yeah. Tip, right. It's one of my favorites. She is pretty remarkable. She was interviewing somebody and I'm so bad with names uh, that I don't remember who it was, but um, someone who was talking about the internet and um, I'll have to find this so that I can give you the info about it um, if you're interested. But I'm probably just going to go look for it myself and listen okay. to it because I think <laughs> yeah. I might have missed this particular podcast. Oh, it was so great. It was full of really wonderful, thoughtful things that, you know, just kind of got me thinking a lot. And one of the things she said is that the internet is, uh, it's like we can think about it developmentally, where it's just, it's kind of like our own conscious and unconscious processes as humans. Like it's, it's, it's an infant and we are, not only are we giving it, and I think I'm adding on to what she was saying, but not only are we giving it like life, um, it's a representative of parts of ourselves, you know, that are, um, you know, sometimes not so evolved, if you want to say, you know, um, and whatever, this is what I think about when I blog, it's like, whatever I can contribute to the development of the consciousness of the internet, I'm happy to put my voice out there because I know that there are a lot of other voices out there that represent things that are a different kind of consciousness. And so the more I can put out there that is representative of the way in which, you know, I think about something, then I'm giving the internet a chance to have its own consciousness informed by, you know, all of these different perspectives, sort of like how humans develop. It's it's kind of a little mind boggling, you know. And <laughs> one of those things that, like, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm listening to it, and there's a smile growing on my face, and my eyes are kind of open in this like awestruck way. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I get it. And at the same time, it's untangible. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, for me, it kind of it, 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 to bring it back to the internet as an um, as a space and as a position of a kind of consciousness, yeah, um, and developmental stage, maybe. And um, I, I think thinking about the internet in a developmental stage is really important, especially now, especially as yeah. there are conversations happening about net neutrality and. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Which you know. That that makes me think a little bit developmentally. Mm-hmm. What happens as we age and we grow and we mature and we become school age or adolescence? You know, mm-hmm. rules start changing, things start, um, mm-hmm. boundaries get pushed, and it's through mm-hmm. those boundary pushes that we learn what is what is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's funny because I think about, you know, the potential for losing net neutrality as like, as you're describing this, it makes me think about, you know, when someone becomes an adolescent and the parent might want to, might start to recognize that the kid is now growing up and making decisions for themselves. And the parent might not 
feel comfortable with that and so might tighten the ring the yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the kid necessarily has to you know destroy the parent in some way has necessarily has to break free uh, in order to for them to become themselves and it's part of the coming into oneself it's part exactly. of you know pushing on those boundaries in different ways is also part of knowing what you stand for exactly it's de it's developing a self it's taking you know making use of what the parent has given you um, and what you've learned and then making it into your own yeah which, yeah which in many ways is is this emerging consciousness that we're talking about yeah yeah I think so Mm -hmm. You know, I, I get kind of excited about living in these times and a little mm. bit scared as well. Mm. And there's there's so much to digest and to metabolize. There's so much, um, you know, as we were talking before about kind of the inability to bear, mm. right? Mm -hmm. or, or the palatability. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you want to take it in or do you want to spit it out? It's right. sitting there. <laughs> do you want to muse on that for a little bit? Because I, I think our listeners would probably love to hear what you have to say. Well, say more. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we were talking earlier about these ideas of um, metabolizing and um, how, how these stories get digested through us right? Mm -hmm. um, what they mean to us and what parts evoke even the darkness within ourselves mm -hmm. and what parts are just like, they're just intolerable. Like we, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm, I'm musing a little bit right now as I'm, as I'm kind of trying to recount this, but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that often when there's something that I've externalized, that I'm looking out there and I'm saying, I don't like that thing. Yeah. There's also something within me that is a lot like that thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I don't want to own that part of me. So it's a lot easier for me to point out there and say, it is bad. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm yeah. one. Yeah. I'm wondering about all of this because there are such conversations happening right now around privilege and violence and consent and mm -hmm. you know, uh, just when we're, when we're not taking the other into, into our consciousness. But I wonder if part of this conversation, because I know that psychoanalysis is, is one of your geek out places. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if part of this is also about the parts of ourselves that we're not taking in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's something about, um, I can think about the internet again, actually. And I don't know if you ever read the comments anywhere. <laughs> I, I learned a while ago that they would just rile me up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's pretty, uh, yeah. Um, and... Those, I also consider stuff like that to be in some way split off parts, you know, like these kind of um, uh, beyond who's an anal uh, psychoanalytic theorist and an analyst um, who was, he, he died some time ago. 
um, talked about something called beta elements, which are just these like emotional fragments um, that don't really have a place to land um, until you can kind of convert them into alpha elements. Talk about mysticism here. Um, but he, so I kind of think about these, you know, for example, the comment section on the internet as these projected out bits of emotional uh, experience or not even, it's like these unthought thoughts, these unexperienced experiences um, that we carry within ourselves all the time. We just don't have access to them. And, you know, I, I think some people talk about it like a shadow side. Um, and, you know, I sort of think about it as unmetabolizable, unspeakable, unthinkable historical, probably two elements um, that exist within all of us. And it's very easy to pinpoint that in other people or in other places and to say, oh, I'm not like them. Um, I think this happens a lot um, in like anti-racist white culture. Like I'm not that kind of white person. Um, I'm not that kind of racist. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, hold a tiki torch and, and you know, whatever. Um, but that's, that's not entire, like, there's something about that that doesn't help own and metabolize something that really needs to be um, thought about and really needs to be healed and addressed. And um, so I guess to kind of get back to uh, what you're saying about bearing something. I think um, we have a really hard time bearing loss. Um, I think we don't really know how to grieve. Um, I think there's a lot of grieving that this entire country needs to do. Um, we think about things like, you know, slavery and, um, you know, the, the near genocide of indigenous people, they're, they're not all genocided, but we think about these as like past events, you know, um, and they're not, they keep repeating. And that's the problem when we don't grieve something, when we can't bear to bear the, the, our own loss or feelings of loss, then we just keep repeating stuff. And I think the same is true for these parts of ourselves that we project out onto other people. If we can't own that, if we can't bear that, oh, this is actually a part of me. Um, how am I, you know, participating in this or, you know, how am I culpable or whatever it is. Then I think we just keep projecting things out onto other people and it's never our fault. It's never about us. Um, you know, and so therefore there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Um, I mean, I guess also the, there's the flip side of that where, you know, some people um, who have really sort of punitive inner critics, you know, this like superego that's just attacking um, where it's like, it's all my fault and what did I do wrong? And, you know, that kind of feeling um, that's also kind of, I feel like in a way, the same thing. You just ruminate on something that can't be fully thought out. Um, 
And, you know, I guess I'll just say too, that one of, one of the things I really like about psychoanalysis is that it starts from this position, at least for the most part, of um, it takes two minds to think one's most disturbing thoughts. Can you break that up? Break break that down yeah. us a little bit. Help us understand that because I, I I feel like I know it and I get it, but I want to make sure I do. And if I'm having that thought and feeling, then I also want to make sure our listeners do. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, I've been thinking about this a lot, and uh, Thomas Ogden writes a lot about this. Um, but the the idea is that you know a parent can help a child. Um, process really disturbing emotional experiences. And if the parent isn't there, then the child has to do it by themselves. And that's where trauma can, can come. Because it's the processing of it by yourself that is so scary. Yeah, because how can you think about this thing that you have absolutely no context for or understanding about and, you know, there's no containment um, I mean, this this gives a whole new lens to the idea that the healing of psychotherapy happens within the context of the relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having access to the mind of the therapist and the the being of the therapist. Um, Because, you know, especially once the trauma has already happened... Um, it's very, very difficult for one person to access that um, and be able to think about it. It just gets repeated through projections and um, patterns like, you know, like when you get, find yourself getting into a relationship that's like basically the same relationship over and over again with different people, that's a way where um, you need another mind to think about that with yes. um, in order to process it, in order to metabolize it and, and shift it in some way. To see the patterns and to understand the impact and what you're, you're continuing to play out. Yeah, and also to see or, or re-experience, but in a safe, contained way, the original trauma that, has, that is just getting repeated and repeated out. And when I talk about trauma, I, I'm talking about relational trauma like the experience of a parent who was unable to help you process disturbing thoughts or emotions, who couldn't help you with your nightmares, you know, or was too preoccupied with uh, him or herself to really be available to be used by you when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it also just makes me think of this new parenting phenomenon that's happening these days mm-hmm. because of the internet, because of our cell phones, where Mm. So many children are not necessarily feeling that they're the priority. Totally. And Mm. it's so complicated, too, because, you know, of course, parents want their own time away from their kids. Like, they want to have their own minds as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very exhausting to be continually used by a child. And it's also, you know, necessary as part of the relationship. Um, there's so, so many sides. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very complicated. And that's why I kind of think none of us can really escape this. Like, I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily any kind of binary of like, 
a good parent does this and a bad parent does this. I mean, with certain exceptions that are pretty clear. Um, it, it's just, it's a dynamic and it's a developmental dynamic. Um, and, and yeah. And, and the development doesn't stop when we hit 18. <laughs> Right? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't stop when you get, when you like finish your thesis. It doesn't stop when you yeah. get a license. It doesn't stop yeah. when you're 90 years old. It no way. is continual. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is one of the joys of being human. And it's also what makes it so exhausting sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> And all of it requires loss, like to go through any developmental stage, you know, if you want to call it a stage, it's more like cycles, but it requires being able to let go of something, whether it's an old identity or like, like we were talking about earlier, like an old way of thinking, like maybe my opinion has changed now, you know, and that makes me a different person than I was a few minutes ago. Um, it requires being able and willing to give something up in order to um, have something new. Because it's in the giving something up that we invite a new possibility, that we let go of it has to stay this way forever. Absolutely. That's also, I think, a really big element of trauma is the inability, like the needing it to stay a certain way because it's safer or, um, you know, you, ha you can wrap your mind around it. You feel like you've got some control. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking too about, um, actually, I was listening to another podcast that I'd recommend um, called How to Survive the End of the World. Ooh, I need to find that one. <laughs> it's so good. It's hosted by the Brown sisters who are amazing um, visionaries. And uh, they only have one episode out. So I'm just hoping that they, you know, have more. Um, but they were talking about, one of them was talking about uh, her idea of, um, like she, she's, I think she talked about it in the context of, of a piece of art by Picasso. Um, she was talking about capitalism. And I think capitalism is also another way that it's, it's really hard for us to give things up um, because we buy something and we think we own it and we think it's ours, um, you know? Uh, yeah. And so we don't want to give it up because it's ours. Um, but uh, she was talking kind of about gift-giving cultures and she was saying that her dream would be like that everyone could have a Picasso in their house um, and then you have it for a month and then you give it to your neighbor and then it just goes on and on and on. So like you get the experience of having that piece of art in your house and then you get the experience of giving it up and then maybe you get something else. Um, but it makes me think about gift giving culture where you get something back from giving something away from knowing that there's going to be change. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something about being able to bear loss in that, that I think, um, I think is hard for a lot of people to do. You know, I'm, I'm thinking it's making me think of these kind of like minimalist movements and mm. some of my own family's rituals around holidays. Mm, say more. <clears throat> well, 
I'm raising two young girls, my husband mm. and I, and whenever the holidays come, there's always going to be something that comes in from some family member or some from us. We, we are kind of minimal on our gifts. We, mm-hmm. we give, but we try to give more experiences and time and mm. um, doing things together. Mm-hmm. And little things like crafting supplies. Mm-hmm. But there's always stuff. And there's like a too muchness to all the stuff and it gets overwhelming. And so mm-hmm. one of our, our rituals has become before the holidays to do like a big edit, get all the stuff, put yeah. it all in the center of the room and figure out what we're going to let go of mm-hmm. and what we're going to find new homes for. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to hold on to. Mm. Um, So it's this kind of discernment that happens before the holidays. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's a, it's a capacity to really go through your deepest cupboards, you know, and find the things that maybe you had forgotten were even there. Very much. Yeah. And, and it's really an interesting process. I find the more we get rid of, the more we let go of and rehome, the more we discover what we already had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a refinement yes. and you see what you have. You see both, both on an inner level and externally, you, you see what's already there in front of you because the, without the clutter, you can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it shifts, I imagine, your relationship with each of the objects. So much. You know, because objects really are imbued with a lot of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, we could talk about like the usefulness of objects, but sometimes it's not even that. Like, just whatever kind of memory or thought or circumstance surrounds it, like, it, it's like... I just have this fantasy that what you're doing with your family allows you to renew relationships uh, with the objects and to renew relationship with yourself, you know, in context. Yeah. 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 I think I might start doing that. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> so I, I really awesome. like it. I mean, I, 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 we start with the kids' toys usually, and I'm like, okay, get everything you have and put it in the middle of the living room floor. Mm. <laughs> and, wow. and start with a big pile, and it, and it gets edited. Um, Do they ever hide things? You know, they haven't, but just recently, just, <laughs> just a few nights ago, my little one now, um, it, she has this growing collection of stuffies that she sleeps with, and it's, mm. it's I think, up to seven now. Mm. <laughs> and she literally holds them all all night long. Um, oh. oh my god, that is <laughs> so cute! It's really cute. And she, w- we were going to sleep the other night, and she said, "When we do, when we go through all of our stuff again before before the holidays, can I leave these on my bed?" Mm. So of course the answer was yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if she can manage to hold all seven at the same time. <laughs> Occasionally, one of them ends up wandering like into a different bed at night. It's really oh. interesting. The, the stuffies. Yeah, that's like the velveteen yeah, rabbit exactly. or something. <laughs> really, it's really cute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that actually speaks to loss too, right? Like it you does. have to be ready. You have to be ready and it can't be something forced because then that's a trauma too. Yeah, there's, you know? there's a piece... 
I mean, we don't always get to consent around loss. No. Right? Oh, no. Sometimes it happens to us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But when there's choice involved, mm-hmm. if we don't get to make that choice, that's, yeah. that's an affront. Yes. Yes. I like that you said the word affront because it really does something to the self. It does. Yeah. You know what I'm, I'm thinking? It, it's bringing me even interest to thinking about like end of life issues and the choices mm-hmm. that individuals get to make about their own life and how it Right. Ends. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I personally fully support any choices that people make around end of life. Um, you know, when it comes to chronic illness, um, you know, and, and pain and things like that, that feels like one of these very sacred things. Mm -hmm. I think that suicide is another kind of element that is so taboo. Um, And just like opinions can change from minute to minute, so can that desire to die. Yes. And so that's where suicide feels to me very different. Um, But, you know, I, I, there is something to be said about feeling like when everything's out of control that you have the power to do something but I think people mistake that. Like, I think people, and you might not want to put this on the podcast. No, I, I, I'm, I'm really okay with this. I, I, this is, okay. you know, we were, we were talking before we started recording about where some of my ideas emerged from, mm-hmm. like how I've been digesting and mani- uh, just sitting with so much of this for many, many years. And yeah. one, of, one of the conversations that I look back on in my life was with my father around the time that his father was dying. And we were very much having philosophical conversations around this very topic. Mm -hmm. And watching my grandfather's death, we knew that it was imminent, that it was happening. He knew that it was happening. It wasn't a question of, is he going to survive? Right. Right. It was a question of, what kind of comforts can he choose to have? Absolutely. So, you know, I think that even when we're talking about things like suicide or euthanasia or whatever we want to call it, physician-assisted death, mm-hmm. um, we're talking about choice still. Right. We're not necessarily saying, do I want to live or do I want to die? Sometimes we're talking about how will I die? Yes, Yes. And I feel like that is, and I don't know if this is my anxiety around a taboo or if there's something inside of me in my like life drive that says that for a person who's not at end of life, um, I think that it's a very different conversation Yes, for somebody who's so emotionally um, like, uh, God, like despair doesn't even begin to touch it, but um, who's so despairing that even though there is life still in them, they can't bear that. 
That is to me a very different conversation than end of life is imminent. You know, the body is shutting down. And how, like you said, how do we learn to embrace that and move toward that um, in a way that, you know, is totally up to the person who's doing the dying. Yeah. They're, they're, I think you're right. Those are, it might sound on some level like it's the same conversation, but they're different. I think they're very different because I, I work with a lot of people who have either attempted suicide or explore suicide. Um, and I think that we all have, well, I don't want to say all because I've never met all people, but so many of us have self-annihilating thoughts um, that can come up in the form of self-criticism or something more severe. How about we say it like this? We might not have met everybody, but <laughs> of all the people we've met. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm hard-pressed. It's true. And I'm hard-pressed to find anyone that I've met in the therapeutic context mm-hmm. who hasn't disclosed something like that to me. Yeah. Um, where that is a working through of something else, uh, and, which I think is different for everybody. Um, but I think I've, I've also worked with, um, I was for a, a time volunteering with Women Can- Women's Cancer Resource Center um, as a volunteer therapist. And I met many um, patients who were at end of life. Mm-hmm. And so we went through a lot of this, like, how do you want that to happen? Right. Um, because especially when you're faced with this thing you just can't control, which is, you know, your body shutting down, um, then what, what can you control? What can you have a say in? Can I, can I wrap us back around for a minute? Because yeah. I, I think this, this conversation about what you can control and what you can have a say in, it's so fascinating to me that our conversation has taken us here mm. and that we're talking about end of life as what can you control and what can you have a say in. While our conversation started with what how do we digest and sit with and hold space for these difficult conversations and pieces of ourselves and in the world around us and the politics? Mm-hmm. And we're talking about that control. And yet it's, it's like it's more palatable to talk about at end of life. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I mean, I think it is and it isn't. Um, you know, as with everything, there's a dialectic, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's perhaps more visceral and more visible when we talk about it in the context of end of life because it's kind of the ultimate loss. Um, but I think, and I think it, talking about that maybe can help us think about uh, yeah. you know, political structures that impact our lives and whether we can live or die. I mean, a lot of the policy that exists in this country is set up for certain people to live and certain people to die. <laughs> I mean, it's basically set up like that. We it, live in it's a very much set up like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the policy that can impact one person in one neighborhood is going to look very different to another person in another neighborhood mm-hmm. or based on skin color or, mm-hmm. 
access to wealth and and gender and sexuality and we can you know ableism all these things we can name all of that in this so um yeah i mean i think it's all interconnected absolutely yeah and and yet i think that in that interconnectedness one of the threads that that follows through all of these conversations has to do with choice and like i would i would say something like bodily agency or self agency to mm. like you know uh, the feeling like you can have an impact and again that goes back to the parent who is self-focused or who is distracted or who is not able to help you metabolize your experiences right like can you have an impact can you get under the skin of our president can you get under the skin of somebody like that you actually need to be on your side can can you can you be seen by them Right. I think before we started talking, I made some notes from a conversation we were having, and you were talking to me a little bit about the difference between the self and kind of the more subjectified um, hopeless uh, I, I, living under oppression kind of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it feels like that's kind of the same thing that we're talking about now as we're talking about that bodily agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, that's where I look to a lot of our black leaders and particularly black women um, and a lot of women of color who are leaders right now. Like I just love Alicia Garza and Patrice Cullors. Like I just love listening to them. Um, because they are focusing on the resilience piece that, um, where, I mean, maybe that's part of the choice is that you can you choose the resilience. Yeah. Like you can choose to, and, and this is, I think, simplistic and I wouldn't ever say somebody chooses to be oppressed. Like that's just not the case, but um, to be able, I don't know, there's something about being, having access to community who is willing to build you up, you know, in this kind of um, gift giving way, right? Where what you give to somebody actually helps you too. I'm, I'm digesting that. Yeah, there's something amazing and magical about having access to a community where you build each other up. Yes, and it's necessary. It is necessary, I think, for... Um, I don't for, think we can survive without it. Yeah, and I, I don't not think... Not for long, not in a no, way. We're not doing a very good job. I mean, we're surviving, I guess, but we're certainly not thriving. Well, I guess that it, it's all left to be seen, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's left to be seen, but I also think we can have an impact. And yes, like, and I think, you know, there's the um, Howard Thurman quotation, or he's said something like, um, 
Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Uh, so much. Yeah. So much. And it, that makes me think also about, I, I'm not going to remember where exactly I heard this. So I apologize for the lack of attribution, but this idea that survival is really about that that waking back up the parts of you that an oppressor tried to hush. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is it. I mean, that is it. And in order to wake those parts of you up, I mean, there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of joy in that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, yeah, it's a process of resilience. I think it's not like a destination or an end goal. No, it's, it's an ongoing. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I often, I, I might've mentioned this in a few other episodes, but I often come back to a particular Viktor Frankl quote from Man's Search for Meaning. Love that. Where he talks about, it's that space between the things that are done to us and the choices we make. And in yes. that space, we have all the power. Yes. That was the first book I read that really turned me on to psychology. I read it in high school. Mm -hmm. So powerful. It's such a powerful book. Yeah. And, and his thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and his story. His, all of it. Mm -hmm. And, and you can, uh, for me, once it's one of those books that I've read a dozen times. Yeah. And every time I read it, I get sucked into the process of being inside of his thoughts while he's going through this and his foresight being part of his survival mechanism. Yeah. It makes me think a lot about this, you know, experience of bearing, you know, what, what he had to bear and what does that actually even mean? Right. Because you can't, bearing it, I mean, especially in the context of the Holocaust and being in a concentration camp, bearing it can't mean taking it in, like, or can it? I, I just imagine it, there's gotta be a skin, or maybe it's the fact that he could keep that space between. I'm, I'm thinking I grew up with two grandparents who had, were both survivors themselves mm -hmm. and grew up hearing their stories. And I'm, mm -hmm. as you're, you're questioning this, I'm, I'm thinking about them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and in many, it's, it's interesting because what I think of when I think about their survivorship, I think about community. I think about the people who they knitted together with. Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. and, and we were just talking about community a little while ago, the community that builds you up. And yeah. I think that is the kind of resilience also that is needed uh, for survivorship. Yes. Yes. There's life in that. Very much. Yeah. There's security in it, even, even if it's just the security to know that you're suffering together or... Yeah. Yeah, you know that um, if there's four of you and you have three loaves of bread, that you'll share it. Yes. Yeah. That no one, no one goes hungry. 
Yeah. You have each other's back. And I think that's, yeah. that's, we live in a world right now that's so cutthroat and competitive in many ways. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say too, that I come from a family that is not community oriented, that is not communal. And it's something that I've had to learn because of the sheer amount of psychic struggle that isolation can bring and witnessing it happening in my family and then knowing that that's not, you know, that does not feel like the resilient, um, growthful, um, awakening, you know, alive choice. And I think for some people, it's been a necessity to be uh, cutthroat and um, every man for himself Mm -hmm. um, because of the family histories or the social histories or Uh, the ways in which um, capitalism or even in some ways, I think whiteness, whatever that actually is, um, can be so divisive. Um, You know, in order for whiteness to exist, there has to be an other. And so you've got to otherize somebody. Somebody's got to be less than you. Um. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's such an interesting conversation because in this, this othering somebody else, you know, um, my, my own experience walking through the world as a human is mm-hmm. one where I know that I other others. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of that and I'm bringing my consciousness mm-hmm. to it. And at the mm-hmm. same time, I think <laughs> I'm laughing because we can only know so much, right? But I think I try to be very collaborative in my interactions. And mm-hmm. I find that it's not always perceived as collaboration. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an interesting, um, it, it's just, it's an interesting awareness that I'm, I'm kind of feeling arising within me as we're having this conversation. And it's not really something I have thought into very far. So these, these are ideas that can be changeable as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think for many of us, and I, I'm going to extrapolate this and say it goes far beyond myself, that we think we're being collaborative and we might not be perceived that way. Yeah, because again, it's a dialectic, right? It's a relationship and we have to be, and I think loss comes into this too, and the ability to bear loss and, and the ability to bear guilt for doing something that's hurtful to somebody even when you didn't mean it, um, that I think, you know, when in relationship with somebody, even if it's just somebody, you're in a car next to them or whatever, um, we just have no idea where someone is coming from, you know? And uh, what's interesting is that some of us tend to treat strangers a lot nicer than we treat people that are closer to us. Um, And sometimes it's the opposite and sometimes something in between, but. um, And we treat ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We are, we can be so mean to ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's so (laughs) remarkable. I, yeah. 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 It's interesting. My sister and I just had this huge, like, 
I don't know what even, just like a big, huge opening between us around Thanksgiving. And Mm. in, in the context of that, we had this moment where I realized we grew up together and we don't know each other. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so here we begin, right? And we, yes. Yes. And, and that's where the conversation starts, but, totally. and it's, it, it feels, it feels like a transformation and yeah. it's just the beginning, but it's, it's that recognition that like, we don't know each other. Or like, you know, a representative of her, mm-hmm. something that you've kind of built up through your own, um, projections, yeah. you know, and, and what you needed her to be as, you know, somebody in your life, um, and then now you can maybe see her a little more for who she, what her, who herself is. And that maybe seems really like a surprise. And, and this really fascinating unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. To actually get, to try to actually get to know somebody, you know, that you think you've yes. already known. Yes. That is such a good point because I feel like we, we miss that again, with our desire for something we can control or feel comfortable with, I think we have a really hard time feeling uncomfortable, which may seem like, duh, but like, I think this is have, big. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems obvious that we don't like discomfort because it doesn't feel good, but I think it's so necessary to f- be able to sit in that flow or, or um, dance in it or move in it. Um, that, you know, things aren't always what we think they are or what they seem, and neither are people. And um, relationships require being able to continually relearn yes. who you are and who someone is and what the context of each other are, too. There, I mean, and, and so here we come full circle back to where we started. Mm-hmm. That opinions can change. That yeah we can change and that relationships and living relationally and communally connectedly with other people requires that, that openness and that ability for change. Yes. And, and the ability to be willing to have the experience of loss and know that it won't destroy you, that the experience of loss is actually a moment of growth and opening and connection. And, and when we're talking about loss, I think we're talking about a really multi-layered perspective mm-hmm. here. We're not just saying that you lose a relationship or a person, but it's mm-hmm. also losing pieces of yourself or how you thought of mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. how you mm-hmm. held an idea. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A loss of who you thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> Motherhood did that to me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. Psychoanalytic training is doing that to me. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think over and over again in our lives, we all have these moments where I don't feel like I know myself, mm-hmm. right? Or there's something mm-hmm. that's happening in our lives where we feel disconnected from a part of who we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the crisis that often brings people to psychotherapy mm-hmm. or psychoanalysis. But it's also, it's, it's this thing that we're talking about, this fluidity, this, 
this openness to change that also invites with it this digestion of loss. Yes, and that you don't have to do it alone, that you do not have to be alone in any of this. You can have a witness, you can have another mind, you can have another spirit with you to help you. Molly, this has been such a delicious conversation. Thank (laughs) you so much for joining me here. Thank you, Rebecca. I can't wait to sort of imagine after our conversation what might come up, you know, like for me, for you, for people listening, like what, where might this take us? Oh, you know, this, this is a great opportunity to maybe reflect and just say that we do have a Hobbscast community on Facebook, and that would be a great place for all of us to drop in with those reflections mm-hmm. and just keep this conversation going. Because I think we can, between our listeners and you and I, I think we can all really add to furthering this discussion with one another. Yeah, I can't wait. Me neither. So, where can our <laughs> listeners find you? Um, you can find me on the on the interwebs. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have a website. It's mollymerson.com. And I have a blog there and uh, some more information about my practice. Um, I'm on Facebook, Molly Merson MFT, and Twitter, uh, Molly Merson MFT also. Wonderful. And we'll include all of those links in our show notes. Great. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, Rebecca. This was an amazing opportunity. I really appreciate you. And thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm so grateful that you joined me. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr. and produced by Kidneystone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another episode of the Pobscast. Brought to you by Connectfulness.